right, folks. Welcome to a new episode of Your Business Here, brought to you by Servoplex IT. I've got a really, really, really cool guest today. I'm joined by Mr. Wes Stowers. Uh, Wes is the chairman and CEO of Stowers Machinery Corporation here in Knoxville. Um, and we're going to give him the platform to tell a story, talk about his business. But before we get started with that, I have a really, really cool story I want to I want to share on how I met Wes. So back in the uh, early 2000s, there was a, a movie called Pearl Harbor that came out. And at the very beginning of that film, there uh, Ben Affleck and um, Josh Hartnett are flying these P-40s, um, which are World War II fighter planes. And I was sitting in the theater and they do this ridiculous thing that you would never do in real life where they they kind of fly by each other and one turns left one turns right but it was the roar of those engines in that theater that i just suddenly fell in love with world war ii fighter planes and i just became sort of obsessed with them so a couple of years ago i was out with a friend uh we were down at a at a park eating some pizza uh or i'm sorry went to go get some pizza and i see a p-51 mustang fly over the pizza place um, never in my life had I seen one in person and I never expected to ever see one actually fly over me. So I went and I grabbed my phone. I was going to take pictures, but it didn't come back. So we're down at this park and coming across the river. Suddenly I see this plane again and I knew where it was going. I saw the, the landing gear on. I said, I know exactly where that's going. It's going to this local airport here in Knoxville. So I, I drove over there. I got to see this beautiful plane. I got to meet Wes and he was nice enough to let me hang out in the hangar. He showed me the plane, opened the wing for me, showed me the, the decommissioned 50 caliber machine guns. I mean, it was one of the coolest things I've ever gotten to do. And, and Wes, I'll tell you, you gave me a gift that day, man. That's one of my fondest memories was getting to hang out with you in that hangar. So I, I really genuinely appreciate your hospitality that day. Well, I'm glad to, you're kind of the steward of those things. We, you, you don't really own them. You uh, maintain them and hopefully, uh, when your time is done, pass them to somebody else who also keep them up. Uh, one clarification, I'm no longer CEO of Stowers Machinery. That would be my daughter as of, I believe, March 1st okay. uh, of this year. Uh, she's the president and CEO. I'm still chairman, but uh, she has picked up the reins and uh, she's been here 11 years but and grew up in the business, but uh, she's running the day to day. Can we can we um let's 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 go back in time a little bit. Let's start with uh let's talk about your your military career if you don't mind cuz you you were a fighter pilot. You flew F4 Phantoms, is that correct? Uh, that's correct. What what years were you in that was it the Air Force you were in? Uh yes, uh I was I went to the Air Force Academy out of high school and uh, uh graduated in 76, went to pilot training and I served on active duty uh from 76 to 1988. And then I had 10 more years in the reserves, uh, 88 to 98. What led you to want to go into pilot training? Well, I mean, that's what I wanted to do ever since I was a small child, I guess. I remember riding on my first uh, uh, airliner. Uh, it was a DC-3. I was, I think, in a small plane when I was an infant. I don't remember. But I do remember I was three or four, and we were on a North Central DC-3. I know that now looking back on it, but... Uh, the uh, pilot let me come up in the front that you could do that in those days. And I remember sitting on the co-pilot's lap as a little kid, seeing all the small houses, buildings, trees, and uh, and all the uh, instruments in the cockpit. I was absolutely fascinated. And from that point on, I knew I wanted to be a pilot. That's amazing. I, I mean, so many kids want to do that, but you actually did it. I mean, you, you grew up and you, and you pursued it and you actually did it. What, what was it like? 
flying a fighter jet, being able to go faster than the speed of sound. And, 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 and personally, I, I am absolutely terrified of flying. I, uh, my nightmare about flying is the fact that I have to get an airplane, but much less get into the cockpit of a, of a small, you know, the small cockpit of a fighter jet. I mean, that's, but I find it incredibly fascinating. What was that like? Well, first of all, it's not as scary as you might think. Uh, we've never left one up there. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the fighters, it's a different, it, it's not like the movies. It's a, it's a very serious profession. I want to be a fighter pilot. That was my goal. Um, when so I kind of figured out what, what different planes did and, um, going to do the Academy and, uh, and pilot training. That's what I had my sights set on. Um, it, it's a, it's a screening thing. Uh, you have to self-select and then you also have to meet the standards, but, it's it's not anything I want to put myself on a pedestal for. There are literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of young men and now young women that are fighter pilots. Uh, we had a reunion of one of my old squadrons last week, as a matter of fact, in, uh, uh, a squadron I was in my uh, in Germany. Love that assignment, made great friends, and there were probably fifty of us that were there uh, from that time frame, and uh, it was just like putting on an old shoe. I, the fighter community, if if you're, uh, it, it, it's close knit and uh, the it, it is very exciting. I, I won't say it's not; it is, but um, it's not like the movies where you know it's made up or it, it, you, you're very professional. You you train very 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 hard. You're very well prepared, uh, and you're committed to what the mission uh, what the mission is and. Uh, you serve with like-minded individuals and uh, it's like a big fan. I've, I've definitely heard criticisms of the Top Gun movies. I know that that was a sort of became a recruitment tool in the eighties for uh, fighter pilots, but, but I've heard that the real life experience is nothing like that film. Well, you know, it was an entertaining film and I'm glad it helped recruiting. Um, you know, it, it cherry picked a few of the things that, you know, everybody goes through and experiences, but the, um, uh, you know, it was Hollywood and um, I won't get into the details. It, it's hard to make any movie about something, you know, about accurate. I could watch a movie on uh, doctors and uh, it looks real realistic to me. My brother's a surgeon and uh, he'll find all kinds of things wrong with it. So I don't want to knock the movie. It was entertaining, but uh, it was fiction. Did, did you ever get to fly an F-14 or would you ever fly a, uh... No, the F-14 was a Navy plane. Uh, I flew primarily the F-4 Phantom. Uh, that was Air Force, Navy, Marines, all the U.S. Uh, services uh, that, you know, other than the Army, uh, flew those in the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, and the Air Force flew it up into the early 90s. No kidding. A uh, bunch of different versions of them. Lots of other countries uh, have flown them, and a few still fly them today. It was, a, I think they made something like 7,500 of them over the years. It, it was a wonderful airplane. We it's bought about 5,000 of them in our country. It's interesting to think that, that that thing's still in the air. I mean, how it could go up against a, you know, fifth, sixth or seventh gen fighter today is it would, I, that the, the F-22 is wild. I don't know if you've ever watched videos of that thing, but it just seems like it defies, I think if they call it thrust vectoring, I mean, just some of the bizarre things, it, it seems like well, it defies it, physics. <laughs> it's, it's, the F-4 was a third generation fighter and the F-15, F-16, uh, F-14, F-18, those are third generation, excuse me, fourth generation fighters. The 14 have an early fourth generation, but it was, it was a quantum improvement over the F-4 and the 15, 16, 18 are incredible airplanes. Uh, 
Then you have the Generation 5 fighters, which would be the F-22 and the uh, uh, F-35, and then there's a European avert the aircraft they're trying to make a fifth generation out of, and the Chinese, everybody's trying to make one. But the biggest advantage is the um, uh, the, the avionics in it. I mean, the, the aircraft itself has crazy uh, impressive performance. Uh, it's stealthy, meaning you can't pick it up with a radar it, unless you're really, really, really in a close proximity for a split second. It's it's very survivable from that mode. But the biggest thing is the capabilities it gives the pilots, the automation, the ability to, uh, I guess, compile a whole bunch of data and integrate it to it where you where you're not having to interpret a bunch of pieces of raw data like we used to have to and come up with a big picture. It, it does that for you. Doesn't make your job any easier. It means you got to be a whole lot more productive, but mm -hmm. uh, your ability to target uh, threats at great distances and uh, have situational awareness, that's probably the biggest thing of the overall battle picture, and uh, then react accordingly. Then the weapon systems themselves, the, cal the, the capabilities of the missiles, and uh, the smart munitions, you know, they're light years ahead of anything that, you know, I saw when I was on active duty, other than perhaps the HM-88 harm. It's an anti-radiation missile that continues to be in service. That was a real game changer in the role that I used to play uh, in, in the Wild Weasel mission. But um, there's there's still a need for fighter pilots. It's a different mission. They don't fly low and fast like we used to. Um, their tactics are have evolved to, to, for the capabilities that they have. But um, it, it's, it's a very intense uh, job. And it's not, you're not thinking about it, what a thrill it is every time you're flying. You're focused on doing your job. You're under a lot of pressure. You're always being evaluated. Uh, you always want to perform well. But uh, the flying part's the easy part. It's, it's managing all the systems and tactics and timing and everything else that goes into uh, uh, pulling your mission off. There's so, so many variables. Your tanker, you got almost every mission requires uh, tanker support. So rendezvousing with the tankers, getting your timing, running your route, um, and then uh, finding and uh, hitting your target and doing all that within the the, the constraints that uh, you're operating under. Does it, does it become second nature after a while when you, when you do it? Some things do, but some things are, I mean, uh, if you go, we used to joke sometimes in training, you'll do one mission a thousand times and you get real, real, real proficient at it. But in the real world, you're, you're doing lots of different uh, first look targets and things. It's um, some things I won't call them second nature. You have a comfort level, you know what to do, but um, you know, it, it, it's like watching a competitive tennis player. Some of it's second nature, but you know, uh, to score, you know, to win, there, there, somebody has to outdo the other. And right, in fighters, a lot of the air to air, you're fighting against another very well trained uh, pilot and a, and a very capable aircraft in many cases. And each has strengths and weaknesses, and you got to play to your own strengths and uh, capitalize on the other system's weaknesses. And uh, uh, I know today we did a lot of that when I was on active duty. Today it's even more so. And uh, it's a very high threat environment if you were ever to go to war. Uh, very, very lethal threats. And uh, there, there's a lot to know. Um, and so you don't get yourself and uh, your, all, all the 
members of your flight uh, taken out uh, of the fight. Yeah, it makes sense. I I guess getting too comfortable would 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 be dangerous. I I'll tell you, we, we could talk the whole podcast about this stuff because I find it fascinating. So I have, I'm going to have to make myself move forward here. So well, the, big, the biggest lesson: complacency kills. No matter what you do in aviation or in business, um, you don't want to read too much for your own press, and uh, you never want to be complacent. Uh, there's a, a, a everything you need to be looking at. Um, what you could do better and also trying to find out what threat you're not anticipating is, is sitting out there. You, you don't want to sit around fat, dumb, and happy because even in business, things happen that you weren't counting on. Little things like COVID, big recessions, things like that, bankruptcies, you name it, government regulations. There's all kinds of things that come out of the blue that you have to be able to quickly adapt to and address. Yeah, let's let's... Well, well, let's come back to that here soon, because I actually want to that, that's that's a really good point that you've made. And I think that's really important to to touch on before we do that. Can you tell us the, the story of Stowers Machinery, how it started and, and and kind of what led to you taking over? Well, yes, it's a it's a family business. Um, it goes way back to West Virginia. My grandfather had a uh, during the Depression, took over a bankrupt Buick Chevrolet GMC dealership and the uh, the bank. If he could pull it off, uh, gave him an equity stake, and uh, he did. He 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 ended up coming out of that, owning a Buick Chevrolet uh, GMC dealership in Bluefield in the 30s. Um, he had three sons, uh, the two older ones, Bud and Dick. Then uh, my father was the youngest. Uh, he was uh, eight years younger than Bud, six years younger than Dick. So the three boys. Bud and Dick went to World War II. When they came back, uh, they went into the, uh, the, the, the automobile business of my grandfather. Um, my father uh, was quite a bit younger. Um, he served during the Korean conflict, and um, that's when I was born. I was actually born in Bluefield while he was overseas. When he came back um, and finished his military commitment, uh, he went to work for Caterpillar as an engineer up in Peoria, Illinois. So that's where we moved when I was an infant and um, my brother and sister were born up there. Cat uh, moved us to Philadelphia. Uh, during this time, it was in the uh, mid-50s. The interstate highway program had just started. Uh, Caterpillar was booming. And he got my uncles interested in uh, trying to find a Caterpillar franchise. And at the same time, one of my uncle's really close friends in West Virginia was the Chevrolet dealer up in Charleston, West Virginia, Cecil Walker. And he was the Chevrolet dealership, had the Chevrolet dealership, but also a Caterpillar dealership. And uh, he told my uncle that the Caterpillar business looked like it was going to be a lot better for him than the car business. So those things weighed in. My uncle in 58 put his name in the hat trying to get a cat franchise. In those days, the dealerships were much smaller the product line was much more narrow and the dealerships turned over a little more often. Uh, this territory came open in East Tennessee in 1960. And so uh, uh, by then Dick had left the, the, the business in Bluefield and started his own car dealership in Kingsport, Tennessee, uh, coincidentally. And so anyway, Bud and Dick decided to uh, sell their car dealerships, pool their resources and, and buy um, what was in the R.L. Harris Company here in, uh, based in Knoxville. Uh, they brought my father in as an equal partner. Dad had a lot of knowledge, obviously, of the Caterpillar product. 
and I was, a, they were all three engineers and they were um, smart guys. Um, dad uh, came on as an equal partner. He was only 30. Uh, we had stores in Knoxville, Chattanooga and Johnson City in those days. And dad ran the Ch Chattanooga operation and Bud and Dick were up here in Knoxville. And so I grew up in Chattanooga. That was in 1960. I was in first grade when we moved to Chattanooga and the rest of uh, the, the companies, you know, thrive from that point on. But, um, you know, over, over the years, uh, they turned, a, the dealership was in bad shape when they bought it. They turned it around. We had the highway uh, business. We had a lot of mining in those days. Uh, and they ran, they, they uh, were very successful. Uh, you have the economic cycles that go up and down, you know, inflation and uh, high interest rates and recessions, and they weathered all those storms and put together a very, very uh, successful dealership. In uh, 1982, uh, Uncle Bud retired, and uh, um, in uh, shortly after that, uh, Uncle Dick, uh, he was suffering from lymphoma, and it flared back up again, and he decided to retire. There was no continuity at that point in the business. And uh, I left by then, my father moved to Knoxville after Bud's retirement. And uh, uh, he was pushing 60, and there wasn't anybody to run the dealership uh, when he was planning to retire. So I was a major in the Air Force. We were stationed in Germany and getting ready to go to a new assignment. And um, he didn't pressure me to get out or to come to the company. He just wanted me to understand that it was probably going to be sold in a, about a year uh, if if I chose to stay on active duty. So it's a tough decision. Uh, we'd been overseas seven years. We'd had two daughters, one born in uh, Spain, one in Germany, and uh, my wife was ready to put down some roots. And um, so it was a family decision. And um, in a couple of weeks, we had decided then to leave uh, the active duty Air Force and uh, come back uh, to Knoxville. So in May of 88, that's when I started uh, at Stowers. Now, I'd worked in the company in high school, you know, part time in the summers and on Christmas breaks. I was uh, uh, back then. They didn't have all the child labor laws, drove a truck, <laughs> pull parts, pull wrenches. That's what I love to do the most. Uh, most of my senior year, I was a, a shop helper and. Uh, it, it was, uh, I, I still love working on things. I, I can't, I mean, I'm not a bad uh, amateur mechanic. I'm not in the league of our, our top technicians. But uh, anyway, we came back in, uh, in uh, 88. Dick did retire. We bought out his uh, interest and, um, you know, the rest is history. We've had uh, significant growth. We've gone through a whole lot of ups and downs in the marketplace. You know, through recessions and economic cycles. We have a lot of competition. There's probably over 100 different people we compete against covering everything we do. And one thing CAT's done that's been really good for us is they've uh, significantly broadened their product line uh, from roughly 30-some machines uh, uh, back in the 60s. Uh, today, we have well over 350, everything from very small, what we call compact products. We sell lots and lots of those and rent lots of them, all the way up to big mining machines. We also have a big generator line, especially on the medium and large size, uh, either diesel or gas-powered electric generators. That's a big part of our business. 
We've gotten into the rental business, though. Those competitors are generally national uh, in size, big national companies. And we compete very well here in our own uh, uh, 38 counties of East Tennessee. And we've got you know well over a thousand machines in our rental fleet. Uh, that uh, so we have a rental division, a heavy division, a light machine division, uh, power systems division. And then backing all that up is a very, very capable uh, service department and parts department. We, we stock, uh, we have warehouses, pretty good size ones in every location and uh, big shops and lots of bays. And uh, we, we can service anything we sell. And uh, that's our biggest differentiator against our competitors is our parts and service capability. And that's about two thirds of our employees are technicians or uh, 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 parts specialists. From the the company's inception to today, how how much has it changed? Uh, you know, with with, with the um, with the, the rental, the heavy, the the light machinery. When when the when the company first started, what what divisions were there, and what's been added over the years? Well, when we first started, we had uh, um, track type tractors. People call them bulldozers. A bulldozer is actually the blade, but people call them dozers. Bulldozers medium and large ones primarily, scrapers, which, you know, scoop dirt. Uh, we had motor graders, and um, that was really it. Um, and shortly after that, Cat added uh, um, uh, wheel loaders. We also had track-type loaders in those days, too, but Cat added a much better wheel loader, a uh, big off-highway dump truck, big, you know, giant off-highway truck, and, uh, and started adding generators. Um, over the years, excavators became a new uh, tool, big hydraulic excavators, big boom and stick that you see them everywhere now. That's the most common machine uh, we, we sell today. And uh, compactors, Cat uh, came out with a big line of compactors. They've had those a long time, but they continue to evolve. Cat got into the paving business. We have uh, all different sizes of uh, asphalt uh, paving machines and rollers, uh, profilers. Uh, we have a machine, uh, so we have a full line now of paving equipment and do very, very well in that market, forestry machines. Uh, then they got into the small machines, first backhoe loaders, you know, rubber tire, tired backhoes. And now we've got, um, you know, people would call it Bobcats. Bobcat is one brand made by the Koreans. And, uh, but uh, we have uh, our own uh, line of both wheel and track type uh skid steer loaders, compact track loaders, mini excavators. Uh, and then we have all manner of uh, what we call allied products. These are scissor lifts, boom lifts, air compressors, all kinds of uh, tools that are used in the uh, what we call vertical construction market, people building buildings. Uh, we have some underground mining equipment. Uh, they're used extensively in the zinc mines that we have here in Tennessee. Um, and the, and we continue to raise the bar on on our uh, our training uh, the technicians we uh, can we recruit train and and keep but we got very low turnover an incredibly talented workforce and that is our biggest single differentiator there are a lot of good products on the market cat makes a great product and so do a lot of our competitors but uh, no one can match our uh, our parts and service support and that's 
what has kept us dominant in the market uh, for so many years. The complexity of the business, it's much more capital intensive. It used to be you would buy a machine and turn around and sell it. Today, most of what we buy, uh, we don't have a floor plan like a car dealership. When we get inventory, we pay for it uh, <laughs> pretty much the day it hits the yard. And when you order something, you, it's your, you don't get to cancel your order. So we keep a, a, a very large inventory and a lot of it goes out on rent. Um, uh, so th th there's a, that takes a long time to turn your, your capital when, when you're renting something and done correctly, it's, it's, it's profitable and it's a good deal for the customer. Uh, but it requires a, a very, very um, a capable group of uh, uh, financial uh uh, leadership. We we have um, we've really had to up our game in uh, accounting, finance, credit, IT, the uh, the technology of computers today. That's a whole other subset of what we're doing today. We have all kinds of uh, automation on our machines. It's like one star for machinery, but it goes much deeper than that. It's not just the location, but it gives you all the fault codes remotely. It, uh, it warns you when you have services due, you can locate where the machine is in any, any given time, measure fuel consumption, uh, uh, how much idle time it has. I mean, there's so many different data points that we can, uh, uh, you know, put together and, and uh, customer has access to the same thing we do. And uh, with that, we put in all kinds of service contracts. It requires a whole lot of management there to uh, make sure our people are in the, are showing up at the customer site uh, on, on a schedule and the customer knows we're coming and we bring the right things and uh, keep the machine uh, managing your downtime. That's, that's a big, big uh, advantage we have is helping our customers uh make sure their machines aren't down unnecessarily. Then when there is a catastrophic failure, our ability to get the uh, right uh, components and get them back in the dirt again. But the but the, te no, the technology is far, far more complicated than it used to be. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, when I was pulling wrenches today, uh, our equipment, has, it's, they're as sophisticated electronically as, uh, you know, a modern automobile. And uh, we're... Gosh, 25, 30 years ago, it was uh, very, very simple. It's very much mechanical. Yeah. Yeah, it's still mechanical, but it's got its electro-hydraulic. Uh, you, you have all kinds of, uh, uh, there's chips galore. I know this recent, uh, reset, uh, you know, the chip shortages have afflicted all of us uh, in, in this industry. But uh, uh, today, we're very, very technology dependent, but it's a good thing for the customer. You can take a much less skilled operator and put them on a machine, mm -hmm. and they can perform better than an experienced operator could uh, on one of these machines that doesn't have the technology. Uh, it's almost like having an autopilot doing the grading and um, uh, compaction. Um, you, you don't, when you look at most jobs today, you don't even see grade stakes. It's a computer model. And the machine uh, gives the operator a, a visual picture of when to cut and when to fill. Wow. A branch, it tells them when they're deep enough. Uh, you don't make any money by moving too much dirt uh, or having to go back and move twice. So um, uh, it, it, it's really elevated the game of our, our customer base. They have to have very sophisticated uh, uh, job superintendents and uh, 
uh, but it, it 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 makes everybody more competitive. So the inventory you have that that's rental, uh, when it becomes uh, obsolete, what what do you do with it? Do do you sell it wholesale to someone, or what what usually happens with that? Well, you know, obsolete is probably too strong. We we still have customers. It depends on the industry and what the purpose is, but. Uh, we still have machines that are in the dirt today that were made in the seventies. Oh wow! I'm sure you can find a few even in the sixties, but uh, uh, they go into second and third lives. Uh, when, when something's brand new in a production mode, uh, there's a lot more required of it than when it goes to a secondary or, or you know, third life. But in the rental fleet, we we basically uh, they average about three years. Uh, it depends on the model. Something like a hammer. By definition, they, uh, you know, something that breaks rocks up on an excavator, um, the rocks ultimately win. You'll wear a hammer out pretty quick. Um, and you have to make sure your your rental rates are commensurate with what purpose the machine's serving. But most of our equipment we're rolling out between uh, 30 and uh, 40 months. Uh, there's a model for each unit, and you measure the uh, hours, the utilization. The key is utilizing your inventory. If you got too much stuff sitting on the yard, we'll move some of it out um, to keep the utilization high. Mm -hmm. If uh, you're always out of equipment, then you need to add more. So it's a real balancing game. You do it on an ongoing basis by 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 model, by store. We have six locations now, and we're probably going to add a couple more in the not too distant future. But we got two in Knoxville, Chattanooga. Kingsport, uh, Crossville, and Sevierville, and those all have rental operations in addition to their, uh, uh, you know, the, the sale and service of our standard line. There's so much complexity in this business that, that you're describing. How how did you go from being a major in the Air Force, flying fighter jets, to running a, running a, a complex business like this because I mean there, there there's so many facets to it did, did your did your father sit you down and teach you the ropes did you just kind of figure it out as you went along what what was how, how did you how did you get up to speed to actually successfully run this business well it's not like flipping a switch you know the the product I, I'm I knew a lot about the, the the machines themselves and the applications from having worked there in high school and my father and I were uh, very close. Dad, Dad passed away back in 2007, but um, he kept me abreast of the business uh, every year from the time uh, I guess I went into service. Uh, so it wasn't a mystery. Um, learning the business piece of it, um, the, the, you, you never quit learning. Uh, that's something my daughter, she has an MBA from Vanderbilt. and uh, She's a lot sharper than I am on uh some of the new IT technologies, uh, marketing, communications, uh, social media, which I'm totally uh, ignorant of. I know it's out there. I just, it's not part of my world, but you evolve. But part of the big, the biggest thing running any small business or big business for that matter is, uh, is leadership. You've got to have the right people in the right spots doing what you would do in their absence. And that's something um I learned in the military. I mean, when you climbed in your airplane, uh, you were literally betting your life that a whole lot of other people had done what they were supposed to do to service that aircraft, inspect it, and make sure it was ready to go. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we did a cursory walk around to make sure all the big pieces were there, and especially what ordnance and things you were carrying. But um, 
it took 10 hours roughly of maintenance efforts for every hour we flew the F-4. Now, it wasn't 10 hours after you landed. You might have five people climbing all over that thing. And uh, periodically, it would be down for what we called phase inspections, where it would be down for maybe a couple of weeks while they went through all kinds of checks and replacements preventatively. But you trusted that people were doing their job so you could do yours. And um, it went far beyond just maintenance. It was air traffic control, your radar controllers, coordinating with uh, the tankers. That was critical to our success. Uh, I could go on and on and on. Everybody had to do their job. And um, and our company, as we've grown, the biggest thing is making sure that you don't get bureaucratic. Uh, I, what I hate is a situation where there's a hot potato, so to speak, something that, you know, rolling around that, and people saying that's not my job and they refuse to pick up the hot potato and put it in the right hands. Uh, mm -hmm. and we, we have a can-do attitude. You have to recognize customers are bring in every nickel that comes into your company and uh, they choose where they spend that nickel and uh, you have to earn it. And uh, so we never want to take our customers for granted. You also can't take your people for granted. Uh, you don't want to run a sweatshop uh, where you're, reward for doing goods, not being punished. You want people feeling proud of the role they're playing and understand how they fit into the big picture. And it's teamwork. You build a team and uh, you don't uh, breaking down silos. That's something you're always having to work to, you know, when somebody's in one particular role, they may not see how they fit into the big picture. And there's things that would be easier, say, for the parts department, but it would be bad for the service department and vice versa. So you have the, the leadership in each department work together to come up with what's the best process and uh, let people understand, you know, why. And uh, part of that is treating people with respect, um, making sure that you don't ever take them for granted. I think if you put your people first, they'll take care of your customer. It's not the other way around. Um, you also have to give people the benefit, benefit of the doubt. Everybody can have a bad day, but mm -hmm. we assume that when someone's coming to work, they're coming to do their job, and uh, you're not trying to catch people all the time. It's something right. that I think some companies are so focused on the minutia mm -hmm. uh, that that becomes demoralizing. Uh, we don't have cameras sitting around trying to find people that aren't doing 100% all the time. No one can. Um, but you do measure productivity in a positive way and reward people accordingly. Um, so, you know, we, we have, we compete with a lot of other industries, um, a lot of other companies, but a lot of other industries for the same uh, workforce. And any one of our employees could pick up the phone and have another job this afternoon. They are in demand. Our customers try to hire them all the time. Certainly our competitors do. For other industries, uh, you know, we're, it, it could be the railroad, it could be TVA, a bridge, uh, you know, <laughs> Bucky's, which is opening up in Sevierville. I mean, there's there, anybody today that wants a job can have a job. And um, we, we've got a great team here and we, we work very hard to keep it together. That's a really good point. If you can get your people passionate about what they do and passionate about your organization, that customer service, that, that, that extra level of service, 
that's going to stand out is just going to come organically. That That's a really good point. That's something I hadn't considered. Well, you, you want people to have job security. You know, there's our ups and downs in the market, but we we, we don't um, we, we try to minimize our turn, turnover. When when things slow down, you'll carry people through the tough part because uh, you they're on the team. You don't want to have to rebuild your team every through every recession. Um, the other piece is you know making sure you got a good benefit package, a good 401k plan, good medical plan. Uh, you don't want people having to look over their shoulder wondering what happens if somebody gets sick. Or um, we have a very good health health insurance program, and uh, you know it, it it's what people work for. They they want to take care of their families, and uh, you want to take away that that stress. It's it's not just the paycheck. Paycheck's important, but so are the benefits. We have a great four hundred one k plan. About ninety, I think, roughly ninety five ninety six percent participation in it. Um, and uh, we've been doing it a long enough time. People can see what others have been able to save uh, through that plan when they retire. And um, it, it's, it's, that's, again, been a real positive. You have to have good facilities, good tools. We have a big focus on safety. Uh, you, you don't want to cut corners. Uh, you never want to put somebody personally at risk. But, but by definition, what we do is can be hazardous. Just like driving a truck, driving your car, but working with uh, with, with cranes and hoists and and uh, uh, presses. I mean, with, you're literally manipulating tons of steel in many cases. Uh, and there's a right way, and there's many wrong ways. And you want to make sure everybody knows what the right way is. And um, doing it the right way often takes a little longer. Mm-hmm. But um, I like to tell folks, if you don't have time to do it right the first time, when do you have time to do it over? And you also don't want anybody getting hurt uh, doing the, doing your job. It, it, it's something that um, you know, we, we really do stress safety. We have 486 people, and uh, you want to delegate uh, responsibility and accountability all the way down to the individual who's actually um, you know doing the job. And... Uh, our, our um, leadership team and all of our shop managers and lead men um, are, are all very much on the same page when it comes to uh, making sure we train our new people in the right way of doing things and that our old people like me don't get complacent and uh, take shortcut. I love what you said about leadership. I've actually been taking a, a leadership course with my church and uh I grabbed it off my shelf as you were talking. One of the the first books we went through is called The Extreme Ownership. It's um, by uh, Jocko Willink and uh, Leif Babin, um, but it's about how the the Navy SEALs their their leadership philosophy. Uh, the, the subtitles like how U.S. Navy SEALs lead and win. What I found really fascinating was the focus on accountability they have in their leadership model. They they basically say there's no such thing as a bad team. You only have bad leaders. And the whole concept of extreme ownership is if you have a failure of some kind within your team, you know, be it a project or one individual, you don't put the onus of the blame on that individual or even on the team. The the leader takes full responsibility for the failure, because if you really stop and self-examine, if you really stop and uh, break apart what happened and and, and uh, do kind of a post-mortem on it, you more than likely will find break a breakdown in your leadership somewhere. You know, you could have trained this person better. You could have checked in with them more. There was something there you could have done better to equip your team. And, and that was such a radical concept to, to come in contact with 
but it's also been sort of a mindset game changer for me, you know, and, and it's, so I really love that that leadership is one of the first things you talked about, like having the right people in the right place and delegating things like you should. I, that, that's fantastic. A lot of it's developing people to understand, you know, I don't think leaders are just born or some people have more natural building than others, but it's not yelling and giving orders. It's, it's, um, it's motivating and uh, giving people uh, an understanding of what it is they're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's difficult. You know, you know, we have six locations and you'll do, um, you know, normal attrition, whether somebody retires, gets promoted, uh, quits, whatever, uh, and, or growth. A lot of it just do endemic growth. We're having to, to bring new people up. We generally hire from within, not always. Some of the specialties in our accounting, finance, marketing, I will go outside on, but uh, most of our parts and service and sales leadership, not all, but most uh, have come up from within. And, uh, you know, so uh, a, a, an, an increasing challenge is how to prepare people for that role so they don't end up getting the promotion and then having to learn on the job. There, People have a learning curve that can be real steep or it can be real shallow. And you, you want to have the object of, of training somebody, teaching somebody is to steepen the learning curve so they get up here sooner mm-hmm. than the curve bounce. But they, they're able to perform the job more quickly. And um, when you have somebody that's not getting it done, it, you know, especially at a remote location, it could be anywhere. Um, do they have the tools required, the information required? We find that some people just don't like it. You know, they they don't want to be responsible or they can't get things done through other people. And um, again, it's a small company. You don't fire the person. You move them back into where they were. If they want to get out of management, great. Put them back into where they were um, last uh, effective. And uh, we we try to be considered on, on pay and certainly let them maintain their dignity. We've got a lot of people who... It, don't fit in one spot, then we'll find another one where they do. Uh, that's how you build loyalty. You don't want people running around fearing getting fired all the time. That, that That's counterproductive. Yeah. The other thing is walking the talk. You want your, your senior management, your middle management uh, leadership, really more than managers or leaders. You want them walking the same talk. Uh, you know, you want to tell people the truth. You never have to remember what you said if you do that. Um, it, it's 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 not a bunch of happy talk and slogans and pictures on walls. It's what you actually do every day, and how you handle exceptions. You know, if you got a individual who's not getting the job done, you counsel them up, or you can you might have to move them out. But you don't want to if if you don't want to treat everybody like they're the exception, and mm-hmm. uh, you handle the problems as they come and. And accept the fact sometimes people have a bad day. It could be a personal issue, a health issue, a financial issue, you name it. And uh, your, your, you know, floor leaders should know their people well enough to, to understand what they're going through. And if they need help, they need a break, they need assistance in some form, or they need more training, uh, they make sure that gets done. We have a, tr- a full-time, uh, we have a, uh, a full-time uh, training program where most of our technicians get uh, 60 to 80 hours a year of, of, of following technical training and, uh, every year. And uh, 
it's focused on what they do. And uh, there's pre-tests, post-tests. And again, you never quit learning. And uh, we have soft skills training for a lot of our uh, leadership team, our sales force. Uh, we have all kinds of different uh, specialties in our service department. You have general line uh, technicians, but you have engine specialists, transmission specialists, hydraulic specialists, welders, fab and fabricators. You have uh, generator uh, technicians. You have uh, uh, truck engine technicians, air conditioning specialists, um, a lot of different uh, than field technicians that uh, work out in the field itself. Uh, so there are a lot of different uh, career paths people can go through uh, in the parts uh, area. Some of our most important jobs are our parts countermen. They're the the, uh, the guys and gals that take the orders for parts from customers or also from the shop to make sure if they need this piece, oh, by the way, you need to get these four things to, to uh, you know, to complete the, the job. So there's a lot to know there. That takes years and years for someone to get very proficient there. Uh, so when you have people join you in the warehouse, uh, they learn how to pull the parts. Uh, and that by itself, you're not born with, but mm -hmm. uh, there's training programs for them to move up uh, to the counter uh, as that uh, becomes available. Then you have inventory control specialists, Specials. I mean, there's so many different roles that people play. Then in the sales side, you've got uh, large machine salesmen, you've got the small machine salesmen, rental salesmen, generator, you know, power system salesmen, and uh, arts and service uh, uh, support sales. So a lot of different sales roles. Um, so it, it's not a one size fits all. As I mentioned, you look at all the different divisions and uh, they all roll up into one. And uh, there's a lot of overlap in parts and service with, with the different divisions, but but you got to make sure that you're uh, um, not duplicating effort or not creating barriers to getting things done more efficiently. You're, you're touching on so many amazing facets of good leadership. And, and, and as I'm listening to you, it's actually really helping me see the importance of leadership in an organization and it's, uh, role in the success of the organization. And I, I, I've actually, we've, I've been going through a workbook that John Maxwell did about developing yourself as a leader. And he, he has all these stages of, of leader types that, that he describes, you know, like the, 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 the initial, uh, I, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but, but I know like the initial one is more of a positional leader. Like you're, you, you get, you get, you come in as a, as a leader, as a, you know, as a manager or as a president, you know, just, just pick a leadership position. You, you get the respect from your employees only because of your position. You haven't earned that more um, relational respect that comes in. Like, and that was the next level was like the relational. And, and as he goes to these stages, what he ends up describing is a leader who uh, not only leads by example, but also, you know, gets out there and gets his hands dirty and gets to know his people, gets to know what they need, what's going on in their lives. And, and he's building those people into leadership positions. And then they, in turn, the people beneath them, they turn them into leaders. And you have this just uh, never ending leadership line that, that develops. And, and, and I'm hearing so much of that in what you're describing. And so my question to you is what has helped you I feel like in so many big companies today, in so many corporations, there's a major disconnect. And I could be wrong here, but it's just my observation. I feel like there's a major disconnect between the executive team 
and the rest of the company. And I feel like a lot of the decisions that get made from the top negatively affect the people at the bottom because a lot of those executives have never done that job. They don't look at what's going on. They don't look at the conditions the employees are in. They'll say all this wonderful stuff, but like, and Amazon's a good example of that. Um, you know, there's, there's this big controversy recently about, you know, employees having to use the bathroom in bags and they can't take breaks and they're rushing around. And this, this vice president is interviewed and, and he's, you can clearly tell the guy has no idea what's going on. Well, things shouldn't be that way. And we, we provide plenty of this and plenty of that. I mean, you can clearly tell this guy has never worked in a warehouse and he, he is completely disconnected from his organization. I don't get that impression from you one bit. The impression I get from you is that you love your te- You love your people. You love your company, but you love your people more. And they can come like you seem very accessible. What has helped you develop that leadership style? What, what led that? What led to that for you? Well, it's evolved. I mean, I, I think I had a great example with my own father and my uncles. They were very hands-on, very personable. You know, the integrity piece, when someone walks around and says, I've got integrity, well, okay, I hope you do. That's kind of table stakes. But uh, it, people watch what you do, not just what you say. And I think today, I, I don't think a lot of corporate people are dishonest, but there's a lot of buzzwords. You know, you can go down a list of things you hear all the time and um there's slogans and uh but you got to put them into action and we were smaller when i came on board we had about 180 people so uh it was easy to know everybody's name and and but you had to be visible and you had to be uh informed uh i think people isolate themselves sometimes too much looking at spreadsheets or what's on a computer and don't uh, get out of their office enough the same time you can overdo that it's all important uh time how you spend your time is that's something i, I i've never figured out <laughs> you know, it takes more time than you have but uh mm-hmm. I, I, I call moments of truth when when there's something that uh doing the right thing if a cut if an employee knows it, that you're going to uh go out of your way. I don't mean me personally, but the company in, in doing the right thing for a customer. Uh, there's lots of ways to take advantage of customers or individual employees. And if they see you take a shortcut, um, that lowers their, I mean, that one time can, um, you know, negate any goodwill you've built. And that's why it's so important for your, your, your middle leadership team to be empowered to call the shot, to do the right thing, uh, even if it costs money, and it does sometimes. In the long term, that's good business. It, it it's how you build loyalty. And same thing when somebody makes an expensive mistake. Okay, I look at that as part of their education. As long as it's not willful or they're not habitually careless, uh, they may need some more training. But uh, hopefully, your good folks won't do that again. But Individual has a situation where they get real sick. How do you take care of them or something, a family member in need? Um, again, an accident. Um, you know, what, what do you do? And uh, the right thing should be the, the default. And um, that's what builds loyalty. You can't command it. Uh, you have to give it before you can receive it. I saw that in the military. I mean, we would be, uh, we were deployed a lot. Uh, we, I remember one one year I was in uh, the Arctic in the middle of the winter up in northern Norway, 
terrible conditions. We, we as the air crew, we were pretty warm. They didn't put us outside until it was time to get in the airplane. Our maintenance crews were out, out there uh, 12 hours a day. You couldn't touch something with your finger if it was metal without it getting stuck. So they were working in bulky gloves and equipment and miserable conditions. But they were all volunteers, I might add. You know, it's the all-volunteer military force. But these were, you know, airmen and young sergeants that loved their job. They were motivated. Mm -hmm. And six months later, you'd be out in the Middle East, somewhere down in Turkey. We'd spend a lot of time there and miserably hot. And again, these guys work and gals working around the clock, uh, they were motivated. They knew what the mission was. They wanted to be there. And I found as a pilot, just sharing what, I was getting ready to do it their airplane for a couple minutes before I climbed in. Uh, they enjoyed that. This is where we're going. This is what I, we're going to drop on. This is all peacetime training. Uh, but knowing what they were helping support. And then when you got back, tell them how you did. Um, they really love being part of the team. And I think mm -hmm. that's something we try to make sure all are. Uh, everybody in the company has an important role to play and making sure they understand where they fit in. So it's not just an eight to five deal where you punch the clock and you go when you come. Uh, they get satisfaction out of uh, achieving something or helping the whole company achieve something that any one of them drops the ball that doesn't get done as well. You get big responsibilities and uh, uh, people want to have responsibilities and respect the right people do. And, uh, Make, make sure, uh, you know, people are accountable, but they're not afraid to make a decision and to make a make a call and get the job done. Yeah, it makes total sense. Well, we're, we're coming up on our hour here, so I'll start to, to wrap it up because I know you're really busy, Wes. And again, thank you so much for for giving me your time today. It's uh, this this has been absolutely amazing just getting to talk to you. What would you say um to a young person out there who's looking to start a business, maybe even in your industry, but we'll be a little more agnostic about it. A, a young person out there who wants to start a business, they want to grow it to the size of, of, of Stowers Machinery. What would you say are the, th the things they should pursue? Are there any books they should read? Are there any habits they should cultivate in their life? What would you say are the keys to success for someone in that position? Well, it's kind of boiling the ocean, but for anybody to be successful in an entrepreneurial role, and I don't consider myself an entrepreneur. I, the, my, my dad and uh, his two older brothers were the ones that started this company, but you got to keep putting gas in the tank. It doesn't run itself, and you can run it on the into the ground. You never want to approach a business like it's an annuity you clip a coupon to. You want to find what you can do that adds value, what your, what your company does that adds value that other people are willing to, to pay for. Um, I, if I were starting a company from scratch, something, A, I had a passion about, something I enjoyed, something I was knowledgeable of, and B, something that other people, that, that service or product that they value that they'll pay for uh, you know, it's there's so many examples I can go on and on, but uh, just having a company isn't you got to have a, a where do you fit in the value chain? What can you do better than somebody else? You know, better, uh, faster, cheaper. Pick two, you can't do all three. So, being better, um, being faster is not going to be cheaper. Uh, my experience generally is cheaper isn't the best way to go um, uh, unless there, it's something that's a, a, just a total commodity. 
but but find out where you fit in the value chain. What you can do that makes somebody else's uh, personal life or their own company's operation better. What takes away their pain, and get really really good at it. The other thing is looking at parallel industries. You got to look at who your own competitors are, but. Uh, what are things that other industries may be doing better? That's something I try to do in our own company. There's a lot of other industries that do things better than we do and vice versa, but 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 try to get lessons from that. And, and third, the biggest part is finding the right people. Um, uh, bigger is not always better. Uh, often isn't. Uh, you got to have good people and build a good base. And, um, you know, if you're loyal to your people, they'll be loyal in return. Are there any books that you've read through your career that have really helped you that you could think of? Oh, one, uh, there were, there were several, uh, you're catching me a little bit around, uh, but good to great. I thought was an outstanding book. Um, and there was, um, I, I've read that several times. And there's another one. It's a real simple little book called who moved my cheese. And that's, <laughs> and I think we're always in, the, in our industry. If we did things the same way we did it, um, you know, even 10 years ago, um, we would not be as relevant today. Rental was something that was a terribly expensive, capital-intensive, risky venture to get into. Uh, but if we didn't do it, we were going to lose our presence in the marketplace. Uh, it was essential that we jump into that, as uncomfortable as it was back in 98. And it took us several years to get our arms around it. I cannot imagine where we would be today had we not done that. And my daughter's facing the same things today. We got a, a great operation, but it won't run itself. And uh, I can see places already where she's made some tremendous strides taking care of things that uh, I, I didn't do <laughs> or wouldn't do it as well um, on, on the IT side and the uh, marketing side in particular. Um, and, and organizationally, we're a much bigger organization and she's got, uh, a, she's building a great team of her own as some of the guys that I worked with over the years are like me reaching the end of their working careers. I'll be 70 here shortly and uh, I'm, 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 I'm over, I'm, 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 my expiration date is, is soon approaching. <laughs> hey, you're just going into the next phase where you get to kick back and enjoy life a little bit more. I, that's going to be so fascinating and, and I'm, amazing to to watch your daughter take over the business and, and start to build it and kind of bring her own flair and personality to it and her own ideas that that's just got to be such a cool thing to watch well she's committed to it it's not something that she just she had a lot of other options and she worked outside the company after grad school uh, both of us agreed it was a good thing to do she worked for booz allen as a consultant but uh, she's really uh, taken help and take this company to a new level and um, like I say, she's been here 11 years now and uh, has a real passion for it, but uh, it'll continue to evolve. We'll have challenges and you meet them one at a time. But uh, one good thing about our industry, people are ever going to quit building. And uh, we're a big part of anything that is you either got to grow it or you got to mine it. Mm -hmm. uh, everything comes out of the ground in some form or fashion or you build it. And um, we're, we, we have a role in all three of those. So. So if people want to do business with you, what's the best way to get a hold of, of your company? Uh, there are so many ways. Uh, it's, uh, the key is that they don't have to go run around the circle and get the right person, but call us on the phone, 865-546-1414 gets a switchboard with a real person. 
unless it's after hours, and then you can still get a real person. Uh, then we obviously have a website and uh, email and all that. Everything can be done online. But um, it, it's been a, um, uh, there's a thousand ways to get a hold of us. But getting, if you get a hold of a live body and that's who should answer the phone, they should be able to put you in the right hands. One other thing I didn't, uh, I, I needed to uh, put forth that. Sure. My wife, she's been with me 46 years and, um, She's kind of been the glue that's uh, held our family together, both with all the moves and the military. I moved, we moved nine times in 12 years and seven of them overseas. So she was uh, instrumental in that. And then she's been uh, absolutely the, the, a rock in terms of settling down here in Knoxville for the last 35 years. And uh, we are looking forward to the next phase of our, our life. And, catching up on some traveling and everything while our health still permits. But uh, um, that's very important for any entrepreneur. Uh, don't script your family life. Yeah, that's that's solid. I'm really glad you brought that up. I, Wes, this has been an, an amazing conversation. Uh, I, I have really, really enjoyed all of the wisdom you've shared, and, and, and especially the, the focus is on leadership. I, I That's something I picked up from this. I, I didn't really realize how integral – Leader, I mean, I knew leadership was important, but I don't think I totally understood it. And you've really shed some light on this and that, just how important leadership is and putting the right people in the right place. And I, I genuinely thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Brian. Enjoyed speaking with you. I want to thank everyone for joining me on this episode of Your Business Here, a podcast brought to you by Servoplex LLC, located in Knoxville, Tennessee. We are a provider of IT services and co-managed IT. If you are in need of any IT services, give us a call at 865-245-9090 or visit our website at www.servoplex.com. I want to thank today's guest. I want to thank my audience for sticking with us. And until next time, take care, be blessed, and have a wonderful day.